Chapter 8 of The Lone Wolf This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko The Lone Wolf by Louis Joseph Vance Chapter 8 The High Hand Evidently, his first move toward departure was signaled, for as he passed out through L'Abbé's doors, the carriage porter darted forward and saluted. Monsieur Lanyard? Yes. Monsieur's car is waiting. Indeed. Lanyard surveyed briefly a handsome black limousine that, at pause beside the curb, was champing its bits in the most spirited fashion. Then he smiled appreciatively. All the same, I thank you for the compliment, he said, and forthwith tipped the porter. But before entrusting himself to this gratuitous conveyance, he put himself to the trouble of inspecting the chauffeur, a capable-looking mechanic togged out in a rich black livery, which, though relieved by a vast amount of silk braiding, was like the car guiltless of any sort of insignia. I presume you know where I wish to go, my man? The chauffeur touched his cap. But, naturally, monsieur. Then take me there. The quicker way you know. Nodding acknowledgment of the porter's salute, Lanyard sank gratefully back upon uncommonly luxurious upholstery. The fatigue of the last thirty-six hours was beginning to tell on him a bit. Though his youth was still so vital, so instinct with strength and vigor, that he could go as long again without sleep if need be. Nonetheless, he was glad of this opportunity to snatch a few minutes' rest, by way of preparation, against the occult culmination of this adventure. No telling what might ensue of this violation of all those principles which had hitherto conserved his welfare, and he entertained a gloomy suspicion that he would be inclined to name another ass, who proposed as he did to beard this pack in its den with nothing more than his wits and an automatic pistol to protect ten thousand francs, the jewels of Madame Amber, the Heisman plans, and, possibly, his life. However, he stood committed to his folly, if folly it were. He would play the game as it lay. As for curiosity concerning his immediate destination, there was little enough of that in his temper. A single glance round on leaving the car would fix his whereabouts beyond dispute, so thorough was his knowledge of Paris. He contemplated briefly, with admiration, the simplicity with which that affair at L'Abbé had been managed, finding no just cause to suspect anyone there of criminal complicity in the plans of the pack. A forged order for a table to the maître d'hôtel, ten francs to the carriage porter, and twenty more to the dancing woman to play parts in a putative practical joke, and the thing had been arranged without implicating a soul. Of a sudden, ending a ride much shorter than Lanyard would have liked, the limousine swung in toward a curb. Bending forward, he unlatched the door and, glancing through the window, uttered a grunt of profound disgust. If this were the best that pack could do, he had hoped for something a trifle more original from men with wit and imagination enough to plot the earlier phases of this intrigue. The car had pulled up in front of an institution which he knew well, far too well, indeed, for his own good. Nonetheless, he consented to get out. "'Sure you've come to the right place?' he asked the chauffeur. 
two fingers touching the visor of his cap, but certainly, monsieur. Oh, all right, Lanyard grumbled resignedly, and, tossing the man a five-franc piece, applied his knuckles to the door of an outwardly commonplace hotel, particular in the Rue Chaptal, between the impasse of the Grand Guignol and the Rue Pigalle. Now the neophyte needs the introduction of a trusted sponsor before he can win admission to the clubhouse of the exclusive circle of friends of humanity. But Lanyard's knock secured his prompt and unquestioned right of way. The unfortunate fact is he was a member in the best of standing, for this society of pseudo-altruistic aims was nothing more nor less than one of those several private gambling clubs of Paris, which the French government tolerates more or less openly, despite adequate restrictive legislation. And gambling was Lanyard's ruling passion, a legacy from Bourque no less than the rest of his professional equipment. To every man his vice, the argument is Bourke's, in defense of his failing, and perhaps the least mischievous vice a professional cracksman can indulge is that of gambling, since it can hardly drive him to lengths more desperate than those whereby he gains a livelihood. In the esteem of Paris, Count Remy de Morbihan himself was scarcely a more light-hearted plunger than Monsieur Lanyard. Naturally, with this reputation, he was always free of the handsome salons wherein the friends of humanity devoted themselves to roulette, auction bridge, baccarat, and chemin de fer, and of this freedom he now proceeded to avail himself, with his hat just a shade aslant on his head, his hands in his pockets, a suspicion of a smile on his lips, and a glint of the devil in his eyes, in all an expression accurately reflecting the latest phase of his humor, which was become largely one of contemptuous toleration, thanks to what he chose to consider an exhibition of insipid stupidity on the part of the pack. Nor was his humor in any way modified when, in due course, he confirmed anticipation by discovering Monsieur le Comte Remy de Morbihan lounging beside one of the roulette tables, watching the play and, now and again, risking a maximum on his own account. A flash of animation crossed the unlovely mask of the Count when he saw Lanyard approaching, and he greeted the adventurer with a gay little flirt of his pudgy dark hand. "'Ah, my friend,' he cried, "'it is you, then, who have changed your mind. But this is delightful.' "'And what has become of your American friend?' asked the adventurer." He tired quickly, that one, and packed himself off to Troyon. Be sure I didn't press him to continue the grand tour. Then you really did wish to see me tonight? Lanyard inquired innocently. Always, always, my dear Lanyard, the Count declared, jumping up. But come, he insisted, I've a word for your private ear, if these gentlemen will excuse us. Do! Lanyard addressed in a confidential manner those he knew at the table, before turning away to the tug of the Count's hand on his arm. I think he means to pay up twenty pounds he owes me. Some derisive laughter greeted this sally. I mean that, however, Lanyard informed the other cheerfully, as they moved away to a corner where conversation without an audience was possible. You ruined that Bank of England note, you know. "'Cheap at the price,' the Count protested, producing his billfold. Five hundred francs for an introduction to Monsieur the Lone Wolf.' "'Are you joking?' 
Lanyard asked blankly, and with a magnificent gesture abolished the proffered banknote. Joking? I? But surely you don't mean to deny— My friend, Lanyard interrupted, before we assert or deny anything, let us gather the rest of the players round the table and deal from a sealed deck. Meantime, let us rest on the understanding that I have found, at one end, a message scrawled on a banknote hidden in a secret place. At the other end, yourself, Monsieur le Comte, between and beyond these points exists a mystery, of which one anticipates elucidation. You shall have it, de Morbihan promised. But first, we must go to those others who await us. Not so fast, Lanyard interposed. What am I to understand? That you wish me to accompany you to the, uh, den of the pack? Where else? de Morbihan grinned. But where is that? I am not permitted to say. Still, one has one's eyes. Why not satisfy me here? Your eyes, by your leave, monsieur, will be blindfolded. Impossible. Pardon, it is an essential. Come, come, my friend, we are not in the Middle Ages. I have no discretion, monsieur. My confrères, I insist. There will be trust on both sides, or no negotiations. But I assure you, my dear friend, my dear Count, it is useless. I am determined. Blindfold? I should say not. This is not, need I remind you again, the Paris of Balzac and that wonderful Dumas of yours. What do you propose, then? de Morbihan inquired, worrying his moustache. What better place for the proposed conference than here? But not here. Why not? Everybody comes here. It will cause no gossip. I am here. I have come halfway. Your friends must do as much on their part. It is not possible. Then, I beg you, tender them my regrets. Would you give us away? Never that. One makes gifts to one's friends only. But my interest in yours is depreciating so rapidly that, should you delay much longer, it will be on sale for the sum of two sous. Oh, damn! the Count complained peevishly. With all the pleasure in life, but now, Lanyard went on, rising to end the interview, you must forgive me for reminding you that the morning wanes apace. I shall be going home in another hour. De Morbihan shrugged. Out of my great affection for you, he purred venomously, I will do my possible, but I promise nothing. I have every confidence in your powers of moral suasion, monsieur. Lanyard assured him cheerfully. Au revoir. And with this, not at all ill-pleased with himself, he strutted off to a table at which a high-strung session of chemin de fer was in process, possessed himself of a vacant chair, and in two minutes was so engrossed in the game that the pack was quite forgotten. In fifteen minutes he had won thrice, as many thousands of francs. Twenty minutes, on half an hour later, a hand on his shoulder broke the grip of his besetting passion. Our table is made up, my friend, de Morbihan announced with his inextinguishable grin. We're waiting for you. Quite at your service. Settling his score and finding himself considerably better off than he had imagined, he resigned his place gracefully, and suffered the Count to link arms and drag him away up the main staircase to the second story, where smaller rooms were reserved for parties who preferred to gamble privately. So, it appears you succeeded, 
he chaffed his conductor good-humoredly. "'I have brought you this mountain,' de Morbihan assented. "'One is grateful for small miracles.' But de Morbihan wouldn't laugh at his own expense. For a moment, indeed, he seemed inclined to take umbrage at Lanyard's levity. But the sudden squaring of his broad shoulders and the hardening of his features was quickly modified by an uneasy sidelong glance at his companion. And then they were at the door of the cabinet particular. De Morbihan rapped, turned the knob, and stood aside, bowing politely. With a nod acknowledging the courtesy, Lanyard consented to precede him and entered a room of intimate proportions furnished chiefly with a green-covered card-table and five easy-chairs of which three were occupied two by men in evening dress the third by one in a well-tailored lounge suit of dark grey now all three men wore visors of black velvet lanyard looked from one to the other and chuckled quietly with an aggrieved air de morbihan launched into introductions messieurs I have the honor to present to you our confrere, Monsieur Lanyard, best known as the Lone Wolf. Monsieur Lanyard, the counsel of our association, known to you as the Pack. The three rose and bowed ceremoniously. Lanyard returned a cool, good-natured nod. Then he laughed again and more openly. A pack of knaves. Monsieur doubtless feels at ease, one retorted acidly. "'In your company, Pompinot? But hardly,' Lanyard returned in light contempt. The fellow thus indicated, a burly rogue of a Frenchman in rusty and baggy evening clothes, started and flushed scarlet beneath his mask. But the man next him dropped a restraining hand upon his arm, and Pompinot, with a shrug, sank back into his chair. "'Upon my word,' Lanyard declared gracelessly, "'it's as good as a play.' Are you sure, Monsieur le Comte, there's no mistake, that these gay masqueraders haven't lost their way to the stage of the Grand Guignol? Damn, muttered the Count. Take care, my friend. You go too far. You really think so? But you amaze me. You can't in reason expect me to take you seriously, gentlemen. If you don't, it will prove serious business for you, growled the one he had called Popinot. You mean that? but you are magnificent, all of you. We lack only the solitary illumination of a candle-end, a grinning skull, a cup of blood upon the table, to make the farce complete. But, as it is, messieurs, you must be rarely uncomfortable, and feeling as foolish as you look into the bargain. Moreover, I'm no child, Popinot. Why not disembarrass your amiable features?' And you, Mr. Wertheimer, I'm sure will feel more at ease with an open countenance, as the saying runs, he said, nodding to the man beside Popinot. As for this gentleman, he concluded, eyeing the third, I haven't the pleasure of his acquaintance. With a short laugh, Wertheimer unmasked and exposed a face of decidedly English type, fair and well-modeled, betraying only the faintest traces of Semitic caste to account for his surname and with this example popinot snatched off his own black visor and glared at lanyard in his shabby dress the incarnate essence of bourgeoisie outraged but the third he of the grey lounge suit remained motionless only his eyes clashed coldly with the adventurers he seemed a man little if at all lanyard senior and built upon much the same lines 
a close-clipped black moustache ornamented his upper lip his chin was square and strong with character the cut of his clothing was conspicuously neither english nor continental i don't know you sir lanyard continued slowly puzzled to account for a feeling of familiarity with this person whom he could have sworn he had never met before but you won't let your friends here outdo you in civility i trust if you mean you want me to unmask i won't the other returned brusquely in fair french but with a decided transatlantic intonation american eh native born if it interests you have i ever met you before you have not my dear count lanyard said turning to de morbihan do me the favor to introduce this gentleman your dear count will do nothing like that mr lanyard if you need a name to call me by smith's good enough the incisive force of his enunciation assorted consistently with the general habit of the man lanyard recognized a nature no more pliable than his own idle to waste time bickering with this one it doesn't matter he said shortly and drawing back a chair sat down if it did i should insist or else decline the honor of receiving the addresses of this cosmopolitan committee truly messieurs you flatter me here we have mr wertheimer representing the well mobsman across channel monsieur le comte standing for the gratin of paris popinot spokesman for our friends the apaches and the well-known mr goodenough smith ambassador of the gunmen of new york no doubt i presume one is to understand you wait upon me as representing the fine flower of the european underworld you're to understand that i for one don't relish your impudence the stout popinot snapped sorry but i have already indicated my inability to take you seriously why not the american demanded ominously you'd be sorry enough if we took you as a joke wouldn't you you misapprehend mr uh smith it is my first aim and wish that you do not take me in any manner shape or form it is you remember who requested this interview and er uh, dressed your parts so strikingly what are we to understand by that de morbihan interposed this messieurs if you must know lanyard dropped for the moment his tone of raillery and bent forward emphasizing his points by tapping the table with the forefinger through some oversight of mine or cleverness of yours i can't say which perhaps both you have succeeded in penetrating my secret what then you become envious of my success in short i stand in your light i'm always getting away with something you might have lifted if you'd only had wit enough to think of it first as your american accomplice mr mysterious smith would say i cramp your style you learned that on broadway the american commented shrewdly possibly to continue so you get together and bite your nails until you concoct a plan to frighten me into my profits i've no doubt you're prepared to allow me to retain one half the proceeds of my operations should i elect to ally myself with you that's the suggestion we are empowered to make de morbihan admitted in other words you need me you say to yourselves we'll pretend to be the head of a criminal syndicate such as the silly novelists are forever writing about and we'll threaten to put him out of business unless he comes to our terms but you overlook one important fact 
that you are not mentally equipped to get away with this amusing impersonation. What, do you expect me to accept you as leading spirits of a gigantic criminal system? You, Papineau, who live by standing between the police and your murderous rats of Belleville? Or you, Wertheimer, sneak thief and blackmailer of timid women? Or you, de Morbihan, because you eke out your income by showing a handful of second-story men where to seek plunder in the homes of your friends? He made a gesture of impatience, and lounged back to wait the answer to this indictment. His gaze, ranging the four faces, encountered but one that was not darkly flushed with resentment, and this was the American's. "'Aren't you overlooking me?' this last suggested gently. "'On the contrary, I refuse to recognize you as long as you lack courage to show your face.' "'As you will, my friend,' the American chuckled. "'Make your profit out of that any way you like.' Lanyard sat up again. "'Well, I've stated your case, messieurs. It amounts to simple, clumsy blackmail. I'm to split my earnings with you, or you'll denounce me to the police.' That's about it, isn't it? None of necessity, de Morbihan softly purred, twisting his mustache. For my part, Popinot declared hotly, I engage that monsieur of the high hand here will either work with us or conduct no more operations in Paris. Or in New York, the American amended. England is yet to be heard from, Lanyard suggested mockingly. To this, Wertheimer replied, almost with diffidence, if you ask me, I don't think you'd find it so jolly pleasant over there, if you mean to cut up nasty at this end. Then what am I to infer? If you're afraid to lay an information against me, and it wouldn't be wise, I admit, you'll merely cause me to be assassinated, eh? None of necessity, the Count murmured in the same thoughtful tone and manner as one holding a hidden trump. There are so many ways of arranging these matters, Wertheimer ventured. Nonetheless, if I refuse, you declare war? Something like that, the American admitted. In that case, I am now able to state my position definitely. Lanyard got up and grinned provokingly down at the group. You can, all four of you, go plumb to hell. My dear friend, the Count cried, shocked. You forget. I forget nothing, Lanyard cut in coldly, and my decision is final. Consider yourselves at liberty to go ahead and do your damnedest, but don't forget that it is you who are the aggressors. Already you've had the insolence to interfere with my arrangements. You began offensive operations before you declared war. So now, if you're hit beneath the belt, you mustn't complain. You've asked for it. Now, just what do you mean by that? The American drawled ironically. I leave you to figure it out for yourselves, but I will say this, I confidently expect you to decide to live and let live, and shall be sorry, as you'll certainly be sorry, if you force my hand. He opened the door, turned, and saluted them with sarcastic punctilio. I have the honor to bid adieu to messieurs the Council of the Pack. End of Chapter 8 Recording by William Tomko